Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you did not bring your Bible, um, I'm assuming maybe you don't own one. And if you do not own a Bible, we want to give you a Bible as a gift. So if you would come see one of the pastors or one of the leaders after the service, we will give you a Bible because we want everybody being in the Bible during the week, in the Bible when they come here. So if you did not bring your Bible and you can't open up to John 11 right now with yours, grab one in that pew, open it up to 897. That's the page number that we're going to be in. This is John chapter 11. And while you're doing that, let me tell you something that maybe you're not aware of with preaching. How many of you have ever preached a sermon in front of a group of people? Okay. How many of you would like to never have done that again who have done that? Okay, no hands. That's good. Who would like to preach a sermon in front of people? Not your... Okay. Okay. All right, well, let me tell you something that maybe you're not aware of because not a lot of hands went up. So when you preach through a passage expositionally, the the prefix ex means exit, breathe out, let it loose, basically. When you preach through a passage, you want to find the main point. There's a main point in every verse, a main point in every passage. Now, look at me. I know some of you are already like, this is really boring, and he's just starting. Where's it going to go? It can only get worse. Listen, when you're preaching, when you're preparing a a message, there is a lot of routes that you can choose to get to that main point. So this last week, I'm out riding my bicycle with a uh, a friend of mine who doesn't come to our church, and and I'm taking him on a ride that he had never been on before, and he says, hey, can you lead it? And I said, I'd love to. So I, I, I led, and every intersection... There's different ways that I could have taken him. And so in my mind, the entire ride, I'm going, well, you know what? I could take him this way or I could take him that way. They're all going to end up at the, at the place that we want to go. And I just chose on the way. Well, that's kind of how you preach. You, could, you can choose a lot of different ways as long as you're going to get to the points that the Word of God wants you to get to. So we're going to do that today. We're going to look at John 11, which I've actually preached before a couple years ago, Resurrection Sunday, except this one's going to be a lot different than that one because I'm just going to go a different route. We're going to get to the same place, and that is Jesus, the I am, the resurrection, and the life. We're just going to go a little bit different route, and I'm hoping that every one of us And I'm going to give you two ways that I'm hoping this is going to impact each of us. One, if you do not know Jesus Christ personally as your Savior and Lord, I'm going to hopefully help you understand how you can if you want to. If you do know Jesus personally, he is your Savior, he is your Lord, you have have bent your knee to him, you have a relationship with him. I'm going to help you, I hope, understand how to go deeper with Christ. That's the aim, that's the route we're going to take to get to the goal. Several years ago, there was a letter, this is actually 24 years ago, a letter appeared in the national news and was sent to a person who had died. So a letter was sent to a person who had died by the Indiana Department of Social Services, and here's what it said, I'm going to quote it. Your food stamps will be stopped effective March 1992 because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. You may reapply if there is a change in your circumstances. That actually went out. Makes you kind of want to live in Indiana, doesn't it? Be interesting to see what Pennsylvania would put out. 
I'm going to read that last part again. You may reapply if there is a change in your circumstances. Now, there is somebody who, if he was here today, he would say, that's not that unrealistic because I've experienced a change in my circumstance. I was dead, and I was made alive physically, and that is Lazarus. We're going to see his story, but you know what? Lazarus is just a cast player. He's in the background this entire message. We're going to bring Jesus to the foreground because we're in a series called the I Am. We're looking through the I Am's of Jesus where seven times he specifically uses I Am and then attaches a metaphor to it. I am the bread of life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. We've done four of them. We're in the fifth one today. We're going to look at the I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to see it in three different scenes. So I want you to kind of picture this as a drama unfolding. In every one of them, while there are supporting cast players, Jesus is the main actor. So scene one, here we go. Three scenes. I'm going to give you the scene one first. Jesus helps the disciples believe. Jesus helps the disciples believe. Now look at me for just a moment. I've really got to keep getting you calibrated to this. This is really important. This entire message is about believing. How? Jesus keeps repeating this. You're going to see it over and over. And he begins with the disciples. As John 11 opens, I hope you're in the Bible, Jesus had left Jerusalem. You can know that by just going back to chapter 10, verse 40. To get a little bit of context, he's not in Jerusalem anymore. He was there when he did, I am the light of the world. When he said, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. He was always in Jerusalem. He's left. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to arrest him. He went across the Jordan River. He's over where John the Baptist was baptizing in his ministry. And he's there with his disciples, and a messenger finds him, telling him that his close friend Lazarus was sick. Now, you ready? We're in scene number one. I'm going to show you a little of Jesus. I'm going to peel back the scripture, and you're going to see his heart. And you've got to get this, because some of y'all don't really understand that Jesus loves you. In fact, let me include all of us all. None of us understand the depth of the love of Jesus for us. So let's look at that a little bit more carefully. Verse 3, chapter 11. Jesus loved Lazarus. Now you could just put your name in there. There's really nothing about Lazarus that pulled love out of the heart of Jesus that does not find the same result in you. Jesus loves you like he loves Lazarus. But the word love here, Jesus loved Lazarus, what does that even mean? There's four different Greek words for love in the New Testament. Three mainly, but there's four in the Greek language. So what does this even mean that Jesus loved Lazarus? Here it is, you ready? It's the emotional affection of a deep friendship, phileo. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, supposedly. Philadelphia Eagles, don't even get me going on that. You know the Greek for the Dallas Cowboys means just like Jesus. Did you know that? It's a, 
That's not even true. I just lied in the pulpit. That's horrible. All right, back to love. It means deep emotional affection and friendship. Now, look at a few verses later. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And this is amazing. That's a different word for love. That's not the same one that's in verse 3. This one is even more powerful. It means to have a, an incredibly deep devotion. So Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. They're all siblings. They're all sisters and a brother. It means that he's really devoted to them. He had a devoted love for these three siblings. And he had a deep friendship with Lazarus. So here we go. You ready? I can say this about you and I. Jesus has a devoted love for all of us. But some of us are really walking closely with him. Some of us, there is a deep friendship that's abiding because every time that you can think of anything, Jesus is in the picture like your best friend. We had a devoted love, he had a deep friendship. Now imagine verse 14. You can even go a little bit before that, verse 11. Here's the messenger. Here's what Jesus then says to his disciples. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's not taking a nap. He's not in a coma. He's going to clarify this, verse 14, three verses later. Lazarus has died. Can you imagine the shock? As Jesus just said two days prior, verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. He told his disciples this. Here comes the messenger. Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. He's not doing well. The disciples are concerned. Jesus says to them, don't worry. This isn't going to end in death. He loves Lazarus. He loves Martha and Mary. He has a deep friendship with Lazarus. And then all of a sudden he tells them, by the way, Lazarus has died. Now, what goes on in your theology? What goes on in your theology when things happen that you truly didn't think would ever happen in your life? I mean, you might have thought that God had promised you that this was going to happen, that if you walk with him, here's going to be the result, and all of a sudden that's not the result. Can your theology absorb that? The disciples are having a really hard time. They don't quite believe yet. Lazarus has died. Let me give you a little background. Jesus did not even try to get there in time. There were one day's journey from Bethany where Lazarus was. One day. It's a full day, but there one day. The messenger came. He did not even try to get there. In fact, he look at verse 6. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was after he heard that Lazarus was sick. You know, the rabbis, those were Jewish leaders, taught that whoever visited the sick delivered their soul from hell. Hospitality ranked about as high as it could get in Jewish thought. One Jewish scholar wrote that visiting the sick was more important than all other good looks. Or good works, rather. So it seems puzzling when verse 6 happens, when he hears that Lazarus was ill, and he stayed two days longer in the place where he was, and we're given a peek at the reason for this. Look at verse 15. And he's speaking about his disciples. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? Here's his reason. So that you may believe. Now look at the title of Scene one, 
Jesus is helping the disciples believe. This is utter importance to them. They're the young church. They're going to explode the gospel around the world. They must believe. Their faith is not where it needs to be. Something's about to happen, and it has to do with the disciples' faith. By the way, do you know why John wrote his gospel? You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then Luke wrote Acts. They all had a different motive. They all had a different agenda. John, very clearly, I'm going to tell you exactly, it's so simple. Here's why he wrote his gospel. He tells you at the end of it, in chapter 20, verse 31, he wrote it so that you may believe, that's you, that's me, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The entire gospel is about believing Jesus. Faith is absolutely critical for a person to be saved. You can't be saved without faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. The Bible tells us even what faith is. We know what faith is. Hebrews 11 defines it. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. So faith is trust and reliance, maybe best summed up in the word in trust. Faith is entrusting yourself to God. Now here it is, you ready? Let me make this really clear. There are probably likely people here or people that are going to be listening to this that do not yet believe. That's fine. That's okay. Not okay that you stay there, but it's okay that you start there because everybody starts there. So what does it mean then to believe? What does it mean to have saving faith? It's the confidence, here it is, this is what will save a person. It's the confidence that what Jesus has done in his death, his burial, his resurrection, can save you from hell and give you eternal life. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you will be saved. It's the willingness to trust yourself to that exact hope. Over and over, repeatedly, John 3, 36, Jesus keeps saying this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, I've said this in many, many years of pastoral ministry and watched people's eyes glaze over. They just didn't get it. So let me share with you maybe a metaphor that can help you at least a little bit better, more clearly understand this. If you were invited to go ice skating... You're invited to go ice skating on a pond this winter. Supposed to be a colder than normal winter, we hope. You're invited to go ice skating, and after you put on the skates, you edge carefully out on the ice, trusting that it's going to support your weight. That's faith. You're out on the ice, you're on the edge. Your faith needs to be strengthened. You need to believe more. You need to have more confidence. But you're out on the ice. That's faith. And it might be uncertain faith. It might be weak faith at first. You might avoid the deep part in the middle, but you're out on the ice. This is a lot of Christians. This captures where the disciples were. They're on the ice. Jesus wants them in the middle. Jesus wants them over deep waters. Jesus wants them on a, with a faith so deep 
so strong, a certainty so mammoth that they will entrust their lives to him, even should it cost them their lives, which for most of them it will. And as you skate, this is how your faith grows. As you're skating, you're on the edge, but you're seeing people in the deep water. Those are mature Christians. Those are people that have been out there for a while. And your confidence begins to grow. And before long, you begin edging out to the middle part. And some of your friends, some of your friends come over to you because you're still a little bit out on the edge. And they reason with you, listen, it's thick. It's going to support your weight. Did you see me out there? You're going to be fine. Come on out. It's best out there. The ice is smoothest. And they encourage you out and you finally begin to go. Now what's missing in this ice skating analogy that is true of spiritual faith. Now listen, this is important. Is that God himself is helping you to believe. God himself is in you, Christian brother and sister. He is working personally to get you out into the deep end of the pool, of the pond, of the ice. And he is helping you trust him more and more deeply now scene one is this and we're going to go to scene two in a moment the disciples faith must grow if they're going to change the world and what's about to happen to lazarus is intended to get their faith growing to get them out into the middle let's get to scene two and watch what happens to martha jesus helps martha believe so first he's helping the disciples believe He's helping their faith grow. Now listen, you got to look at me for a moment because this is really, really important that you walk out of here with this understanding. Now look at me. Every single one of us, me included, need our faith to continue to grow. We don't believe perfectly, none of us. It doesn't matter how long you've been in Christ, your belief, your faith still needs to be fine-tuned. It still needs to grow. And we need to be helping other people's faith grow as well. Jesus is the example for us. He's helping the disciples. Now, scene two, he's going to help Martha's faith grow as well. George Bernard Shaw said something incredibly, ridiculously simplistic and true. The statistics on death, he said, are quite impressive. One out of one people die. Profound, isn't it? Death looms in our future. Now, I'm not trying to bring a downer to you. I'm trying to bring more of a sober message. We're all going to die. That's just part of living. Should Jesus tarry? Now, if he comes back and he gets his people and we meet him in the air, then you won't experience death. But should he tarry, then we're all going to die. That's just a fact. We're going to die. Nothing ever lives forever, no matter what science tries to do. So let's take that into what Martha's experiencing right now. Now look what, look what it says. Now when Jesus came, or verse 17, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. So it's just south of Jerusalem. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, Lazarus, he's been dead for four days. Unlike for us, like if I were to die today, tonight, I would probably get buried Wednesday or Thursday. Not then. They buried you the same day you died. Really important to the story. 
So Lazarus dies, he is buried the same day. They always did that. And there was a Jewish superstition, that it endured, by the way, up to 150 years ago. Here's what it was, that when you died, your soul hovered over your body for three days looking for some opportunity to come back in. So if somehow you were to be resuscitated within those three days, that was the opening your soul needed to come back to life. They believed that. That was a superstition in the days of Christ. Now, Jesus didn't believe that, obviously. But the people did. Now, why did he wait so long? Four days went one day beyond that superstition ended. Listen, at the end of three days, they gave up hope. There's no way Lazarus is going to get resuscitated. If he, if he had performed this miracle before then, then the skeptics are just going to say, well, it's happened before. He, he resuscitated. His soul found a way back in his body. Jesus waits four days so that no one could believe that superstition. And when a person died, there was a long blast on a shofar. That's a horn. And it would have alerted everybody in town that death had come to somebody of their own. And everybody, everybody in the entire town was expected, and they would, because they treated funerals with utmost sincerity, utmost care. Everybody would come to the funeral, and they would join in the procession to the grave. So Jesus is going to go in the tomb. He's not in Bethany yet. He's going to be outside of the town, because they always bury you outside of the town. That's always where their cemeteries were. And there were two distinct periods of mourning. So listen, Lazarus dies. Let me tell you where Martha and Mary were. The first period of mourning, it lasted seven days. And the first three of those seven days were days of weeping. They called them days of weeping. So her brother, their brother died, Martha and Mary, for three days, as custom dictated, were in deep days of weeping. They were expected to weep. By the way, we don't do grieving well. The Jewish people do. In fact, they did it really well. They commanded you to mourn. They commanded you to grieve. They set up everything to facilitate it. And then there was a very clear delineated end to it when you now had to leave it behind you and move forward. We get stuck in grief. They didn't allow it to happen. Two distinct periods of mourning. The first was seven days of which the first three deep days of mourning, weeping. And during that deep weeping, during that deep mourning, they weren't to bathe. They could not anoint themselves. They, they didn't have deodorant. You know what the ladies did? They didn't have deodorant. They had little flasks that were tied around their neck by a leather thong, and they would uncork it and dab it around their body and then recork it. That was the deodorant. That was their perfume. During the deep mourning, they weren't allowed to do that. They couldn't even wear that. They couldn't put on shoes. They could not engage in any study, any work. But then after the seventh day was completed, then they had 30 days, period two, called lighter mourning. It was not as heavy as the first seven days. And it was right after the three days of weeping that Jesus arrived at Bethany. Now look at your text, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now Martha goes to meet Jesus when she heard he was there. Mary stays in the house. She's weeping. She's mourning. She's in the seven days. 
She's not even really allowed to put shoes on. Martha breaks the custom. She had anointed his feet, Mary had, earlier, John eleven two. 2. Sat at his feet learning, John, Luke 10, 39. Yet now Mary is so grief-stricken, she can't even move toward him. Haven't you ever been like that, by the way? Or do you not know somebody that's experienced a grief so deep that they cannot even pray? It just chokes you. It creates a logjam in your soul. That's what deep, deep grief will do. That's Mary. She can't even move towards Jesus. Martha does. Pain is intense for Mary, as it is for Martha. But you remember, Mary's the feeler. Martha's the doer. So she went and she met him. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, scene two is Jesus helps Martha's faith grow, okay? Let me show you why it needs to grow. Because there's a couple things in what she says to Jesus that betrays a weak faith in need of, confection, in need of correction. Here we go. First, she tells Jesus, if you had been here, believing that Jesus could have done something four days earlier, but now the opportunity has passed. There was nothing he could do. So Jesus can intervene for the living, but he's powerless for the dead. That's where her faith needs to be corrected. But there's another area. She says, if you had been here, here in Bethany, limiting the power of Jesus to be, he has to be present to perform miracles. Listen, he's already proven that he doesn't need to be. Do you remember the centurion in Luke chapter 7? Whose valued and dying servant, he comes to Jesus, says, my servant whom I love, who I value is dying. Can you heal him? He sends a servant to tell Jesus. Jesus is on his way. The centurion, he's a Roman. He's a Gentile. He sends another message to Jesus saying, listen, I'm a person of authority as well. I know that you don't even need to show up. I'm not even worthy of you being here to heal my servant. Could you just say the word and don't, don't even bother to show up at my unworthy residence? And Jesus says these words. He marveled and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith and the servant is healed from a distance martha where is your faith where is your faith that even a gentile centurion has faith that marvel jesus and yours is weak it is in need of correction and jesus lovingly will do that but she's not without faith for she said next but even now i know that whatever you ask from god god will give you now listen we're look at me for a second because we're thinking okay martha all right all right now you're showing signs got that faith it's ramping up i think you're gonna heal him well maybe that's not exactly what she means i think she's asking for comfort not expectation that jesus would raise her brother to life here on earth because jesus said to her look at your text your brother will rise again and she says i know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day martha knew lazarus would rise again but it's at the final judgment when god would raise everybody back and everybody would be judged now listen martha is skating over shallow 
water. She's on the edge of the pond. Jesus needs her in the middle. Jesus wants her confidence to be able to ask anything of him. And he's got the power to fulfill. Hers was a faith in need of correcting and strengthening. So Jesus does this. And it leads to the fifth I am statement in the Gospel of John. Here's what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now this is really important. Jesus is not saying that he has authority from God to resurrect the dead and give life. That's not what he's saying. That just seems to be what he's saying. Both Elijah and Elisha from the Old Testament, remember that each of them had a young man who had died in their ministry, a young man who had died in their ministry, and each of them had prayed to the Lord. That's Yahweh. That's the I am of the Old Testament. And in each case, God answered. The Lord answered. And, they, and he brought the boy back to life in each of those cases. They had, the boys had died. Yahweh heals them. He brings them back to life. The power, though, was not in either Elijah or Elisha, but in the Lord. He is the I am. Here's what Jesus is saying to Martha. I am the power that gives life to the dead. Do you believe this? All right, time out. Got to bring it home. We're going to get to scene three in a moment. This could just fly right over our theological heads if we're not careful. Be utterly unapplied to our hearts. All right, let's start here. Do you have a sin that you cannot break the grip of? Are you in an addiction that you are powerless to get out? You hate it and you love it. You love it until you give in to it. And then you hate it because of the guilt that it brings. And you wonder, God, will I ever, ever get out of this? I have prayed a thousand times. Why am I not delivered? All right, well, let's bring it home for a second way. Do you have a friend or a family member that's not a believer? They have a heart deadened to sin. And you have prayed over and over and over again for years and years. And there is no progress that you think is being had, being made. Now, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection? That he can bring dead hearts to life? That he can break the chains of addiction and give you freedom? Do you truly believe that? Do you really believe that when people are sick and they're dying, that you have permission from God to come and ask and plead and pray for life? And should he will it so, he has every bit of power to bring life to even cancer-ridden bones. Do you believe that? See, you might be a Christian, you might be on the ice, but if you're out on the edge, that's unacceptable to God because you're going to live a shallow theological life. He wants you out into the deep end. He wants you praying with faith. He wants you trusting him. No matter when everything around you seems to be failing, he has a plan and he's going to perfect it in you. Why? This is so ridiculously simple that it doesn't even almost seem necessary to mention it. Faith is not a static commodity. Faith is spiritually organic. And healthy faith always, listen, healthy faith is a growing faith. 
If your faith is not growing, then it's not healthy. And God wants it to grow, and the I am has the power to help it to grow. Do you truly believe that? You know that difficult experiences can weaken our faith? Haven't you experienced that? God, I don't understand why this is happening. I used to believe, I used to trust you. And I, as a pastor, have talked to so many people who today can barely trust God because of the circumstances they've gone through. They might have been close to the deep end of the pond, skating in confidence, but all of a sudden a trial hits them and it shoves them right back to the edge. And God begins a reclamation mission. He wants you back out in the center where you can live. And he is the great physician. Look at this. This is so beautiful. Hebrews chapter 12, 2. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He knows how to nurse sick faith back to healthy, growing faith. And Martha's, well, her faith is going to grow, but boy, she's been knocked. She's been hammered. She's been really assailed by this tidal wave of a trial. Her brother died, and Jesus wasn't there to do anything about it. So he asked her a question that's designed to get her, her faith moving. Do you believe this? You know, I believe that God is asking that same question to every single one of us all the time. I don't know if we're hearing it, but I think he asks this all the time. Do you really trust me? Do you truly believe me? Look what Martha said. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. She's on the ice who is coming into this world. In fact, she's on pretty good ice. She answers yes with her mouth, but look at her question, her actions, her actions. They're going to betray that she still does not quite believe. Let's go find it. Scene three. Jesus helps the people standing around believe. He's been helping the disciples. He's particularly, specifically helping Martha. Now he's going to help the people that are standing around believe, who, cont who contains the crowd contains the disciples, Martha, Mary, a bunch of friends. Jesus saw her weeping, verse 33. This is Mary. And the Jews had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, deeply moved. Do you know this about Jesus? Deeply moved was the word they used when a horse would snort before a battle, when its bloodlust was stirred up, when its anger was rising, a battle horse. It was also a word that was used when a horse would snort under a very heavy load. They'd snort either in the prime of battle anticipating it or under a heavy load. That word is used for either. So what's it mean then? All right, let's extrapolate that. What's it mean then that Jesus, his heart was deeply moved? I mean, come on, you got to look at Jesus as fully human and fully God. He inhabits all of humanity. So when his heart is deeply moved, well, what does it mean? Here's what I think it means. Here's what I believe it means. I think it describes two things, both the heart of Jesus as he's about to prove his power over death. About to prove it with Lazarus. He's going to prove it even more greatly on the cross. But I think it's his heart is also heavy and it's also troubled because of the depth of grief of his friends. 
They are weeping. Martha's weeping. Mary's weeping at his feet. Do you think that Jesus just stands idly by when you bring your tears to him? Listen, when you bring your pain, he writes it in a scroll. He collects your tears in a bottle, the psalmist says. He feels what you're feeling. It bothers him when we're suffering. He doesn't stand benign and uncaring. He is a caring God, and Jesus demonstrates it. Death is an outrage to Jesus. It's contrary to everything in his being, and he came to earth to conquer it, to give life. Death is the result of sin, and Jesus came to break his power and to give life. Do you remember two weeks ago in this sermon series, he said, I I come, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. How? How can anybody have life? Well, Jesus has accomplished this. He's atoned for our sins with his death. That's why he had to die. Listen, if all you had to do is take a syringe and draw out a pint of his blood and splash it against the altar in the temple of Jerusalem, then that really wouldn't have been that much. No, Jesus had to bleed to death. That's what it means, shed his blood. He had to die for us. He died in our place so that we could live. He took our sins and gave us righteousness. Listen, the very moment that you believed. That's when that happens. If you haven't believed yet, if you haven't put your trust in him, if you haven't gone out on the ice of spiritual faith yet, then you're still under the weight of your sins and its guilt, and you are separated from God. But the very moment you put your faith in him, listen, you're on the ice. You're in the family of God. He has saved you. He has put you into righteousness, and he has put righteousness into you. It's how you have life. But he had to die on the cross to do it. You know, in Kenya, this is a true story. Africa, an eight-year-old by the name of Monica fell into a pit. This made the newspaper. Broke her leg. She, they, they use pits often to trap predator animals. She fell into a pit, broke her leg. An older woman, Mama Jerry, was walking near, heard her cries, climbed down into the pit to help Monica But both of them were bitten by a black mamba snake that neither of them saw. Monica was taken to Kajabi Medical Center and admitted, but Mama Jerry went home. She fell asleep and never woke again. You know why? She was the first one bitten. And when the snake bit her, the poison expended itself into her body. There was none left in the snake. And when it bit Monica, it was painful but harmless listen this a very good analogy for what jesus did on the cross when he died for us he took the sting of death so yes we will die according to george bernard shaw we will die but there is no sting oh death where is its sting there is no fatalistic hopeless despair because when the christian dies the first thing they see when they wake up is the smiling, radiant face of Jesus. And it's instant. For our sake, the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. The Holy Son of God became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So here we go. You ready? The raising of Lazarus was a demonstration of the gospel. That's exactly what it was. So that people would believe that if God has power to take a dead body and bring it back to, to, to physical life, then he's got, father, he's got the power to bring dead hearts to spiritual life. Death will not have the last word. Jesus will. And he has it. Verse 41. He lifts up his eyes and he says, and by the way, as we're about to read this, there's truly no reason that Jesus spoke these words out loud. This was not an incantation. This is not Dr. Strange from the upcoming Marvel movie speaking some words of power. He didn't need to speak this. He spoke it so that the people around him would believe. Look what he says. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. Why? That they may believe. Get them out on the ice that you sent me. Listen, this is why you've got to speak the gospel. You've got unsaved people at work. You've got unsaved people in your neighborhoods, in your schools. You've got to speak. You've got to bring the words of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. You've got to speak it so that people can hear it and their faith comes alive. And they step out on the ice. And Jesus does it. I said it for them. Now watch me put it into action. He wants to save them. He wants to save the people around. So he breaks asunder the very fabric of death. And he brings life. Verse 44. He cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come out. It's a very definitive command. And the man who had died came out. You know, he had resurrected a little girl earlier on in his ministry. She had died just minutes before he got to the house. He had resurrected a young man, son of a now widow, or of a widow, who had died just hours before he got into Nain from Capernaum. Now he resurrects a man who had been, died for four, had been dead for four days. Christ is the great I am, the resurrection and the life. And in the raising of Lazarus, the gospel is being preached for those who have ears to hear. The Bible calls every person a sinner who, who is dead in his or her sins. Mean, now listen, what does that mean to be dead in your sins? What does it mean to be spiritually a Lazarus? It means that not only is every cell in our bodies heading towards death, but even worse, spiritually, we can't respond to to God in faith. We cannot even hear him. We cannot love him. There's no way for a spiritually dead person to love God. Something has to bring him to life. That's the result of sin. Listen, you want to know what sin does? This is why you ought to be so angry at sin. Your own, my own, around us. Because sin kills. Not always physically, immediately, but it always kills the soul. It always deadens the conscience. It renders us spiritually unresponsive, alienated from God, unable to fix our situation. Here's the gospel, Ephesians 2. But God, being rich 
in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Listen, Lazarus wasn't lying in the tomb going, Jesus, would you please raise me to life? He's dead. It's a gift. And Christ is showing that we who are dead in our sins, we can be forgiven. You can be given eternal life that begins today. And though we might die physically, we will all be raised one day. We will live forever in a life where death and pain no longer exist. And there are no more tears. There is no more sorrow. But the disciples, listen, the disciples, they've got to believe. Martha, she's got to believe. The people around, they've got to believe. And if you're going to be saved, friends, if you're going to know eternal life, you've got to believe. And Jesus asks you the same penetrating question that he asked Martha. Do you believe this? Listen, you must, if you're going to live, you must believe. And you get on the ice. Now I'm going to close and I'm going to tell you how you get on the ice. There is no formula. There's nothing you've got to say in the right order or in the right words. There's nothing you've got to do that's, that a priest or a pastor has to help you with. You could do this privately, right in your seat. You could do it tonight. You could do it tomorrow morning. You could do it at any point. You only need to do it once, and that is this. Do you recognize that you're a sinner? And those sins have spiritually killed your soul, separating you from God. And you can't fix it. There's nothing you could do to fix your spiritual condition. But God can. He sends his son Jesus to die on the cross to take the snake bite. So that when it sinks its fangs in you at the end of your life, you won't die and go to hell. You will die and go to glory because he took the poison. For death, there is no more sting for the Christian. It's by faith. Jesus, I realize you died for me. You will take my sins. You will take my past, present, and future sins. And you will put them on you, on that cross. And you will give me righteousness and peace and forgiveness and a new start in life. God, would you forgive me? Would you do it through Jesus? There's not another way. I believe it. And get me out on the ice and teach me to skate in the deep end. That's what he will do for you. Do you believe that? Let's pray.